The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Good morning, Ecclesia. It is a treat to be together this morning. And uh, before we dive in, I just want to take a second. I, I know you already know this, uh, but we have an incredible staff here, um, whether it's Matt leading the team in worship or over in the children's spaces or preparing for the gatherings. Douglas is on our grounds crew. He was here this morning wiping pollen off the tables outside. So if you sat down at the table outside, you wouldn't get pollen on your donut. So just really devoted to this community, really beautiful uh, team of people. So when you see one of them, um, say thanks. Same for our volunteers. I mean, honestly, you guys are incredible uh, in all the ways that you serve one another, and that's really uh, who the church is supposed to be, so um, wanted to thank you for that. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, we thank you for the chance to gather together to uh, worship, sure, to sing, uh, but also just to look each other in the eye, um, to share some encouragement, a hug, um, to connect with one another. Maybe after a long week, God, I'm sure there are those among us who have limped in here this morning, weary, um, maybe with family strife or job stress or just the weight of living in a broken world um, on our shoulders. God, I pray that as we've been able to do through singing and through Uh, talking to one another, that through your word you would encourage us, teach us, change us, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to jump right into Exodus chapter 20. These verses are going to sound pretty familiar uh, to many of you, Um, starting in verse 1. Then God began to speak directly to all the people. I'm the eternal, your God. I led you out of Egypt and liberated you from lives of slavery and oppression. You are not to serve any other gods before me. You're not to make any idol or image of other gods. In fact, you're not to make an image of anything in the heavens above, on the earth below, or in the waters beneath. You're not to bow down and serve any image, for I, the eternal, your God, am a jealous God. As for those who are not loyal to me, their children will endure the consequences of their sins for three or four generations. But for those who love me and keep my directives, their children will experience my loyal love for a thousand generations. You're not to use my name for your own idle purposes, for the eternal will punish anyone who treats his name as anything less than sacred." You and your family are to remember the Sabbath day, set it apart, and keep it holy. You have six days to do all your work, but the seventh day is to be different. It is the Sabbath of the eternal, your God. Keep it holy by not doing any work, not you, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, or any outsiders living among you. For the eternal made the heavens above, the earth below, the seas, and all the creatures in them in six days. Then on the seventh day he rested. That is why he blessed the Sabbath day and made it sacred. You're to honor your father and mother. If you do, you and your children will live long and well in the land. The eternal your God has promised to you. You are not to murder. You're not to commit adultery. 
You're not to take what is not yours. You are not to give false testimony against your neighbor. You're not to covet what your neighbor has or set your heart on getting his house, his wife, his male or female servants, his ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. As all the people witnessed the signs of God's presence, the blast of the ram's horn, the roaring thunder, the flashing lightning, and the smoke-covered mountain, they shook with fear and astonishment and wisely kept their distance. I want you to imagine being an enslaved people. That's who we're talking about here when we talk about the nation of Israel. For centuries they have been under the thumb of Pharaoh in Egypt. And among your other numerous problems, if you are an enslaved people, is this reality that you are not free. And in fact, you are basically told what to do all the time. Put another way, there are just a lot of rules you have to follow. We know that even from reading the book of Exodus earlier, how the Israelites were instructed to build certain things, to make bricks, and even as punishment sometimes other rules would be introduced, such as they were to make the bricks without the straw, which made their... Uh, made their job a little more arduous. And so this is not a good situation to be in, what with all the rules you have to follow and people telling you what to do. Now Moses arrives on the scene and he promises this idea of freedom. And as an enslaved people, that must sound pretty interesting. And so we know from our study of Exodus so far that it's a little more complicated than this. But eventually they listen to Moses and they go. And what happens when Moses becomes their leader is Pharaoh stops telling them what to do and Moses starts telling them what to do. We're going to go here. We're going to go there. We're going to stop here. Bread's going to fall from the sky. Go pick it up, but don't pick up too much. Don't pick it up on this day. And for an enslaved people, it probably was nice to have freedom. I'll grant you that. But they've just exchanged one person's rules for another person's rules. And so it happens that when God speaks to them for the first time, as an, as an enslaved people, I'm just wondering if it would have been nice if they got something other than a set of rules. But maybe we're not looking at this the right way. Maybe the reason when we read the Ten Commandments we just think, wow, that's just a bunch of rules is because of the way we think about rules generally. We don't like rules, you and I. Now we follow them. And sometimes we impose even more harsh rules upon ourselves, but we, nobody likes rules. Think about all the rules from the time you wake up in the morning to the time you go to sleep at night that you have to follow. I mean, in a way, when we set our alarm clocks, we're making a rule. I'm going to wake up at this particular time. We have really stupid rules sometimes that make no sense, like this idea that once a year, in the middle of the night, we're just going to forfeit an hour of our lives to some mysterious entity that needs it. I don't know why we do this. My whole life, I've had a really, really old alarm clock. Like, I just never have, that's not something I've upgraded recently. So it's like time, hour, plus sign, to move forward an hour, right? And I do that every year. Uh, I did recently improve my alarm clock game. And so last night, I only had to push two buttons. 
I think it was hour and plus sign, and I moved my clock forward an hour. What I didn't realize is that these newfangled alarm clocks we have now, they will do that automatically for you in the middle of the night. So that bumped me up two hours. So I was actually an hour early this morning waking up, not an hour late. We've got all these weird rules. We wake up in the morning, we get in our car, there are certain lanes you can drive in at certain times if you have certain amounts of people in your car at that time, or there are other lanes that will cost a dollar on the weekend, but $17.50 during the week at 7.30 in the morning. We just have these arbitrary rules that we tend to follow, and I don't think we like rules because we have to follow them all the time. But what if, unlike the rules that we subject ourselves to day in and day out, these so-called commandments, what we kind of look at traditionally as these rules that God gives us that we have to follow, what if they're not really rules, but instead an invitation to a relationship? You know, I think the more I read Exodus 20, the more I'm convinced that's the case. And one of the reasons I'm convinced that's the case is because of what God says. Now, look, he says 10 things that we're supposed to either do or not do. All right, you know them. You've read them in lots of translations. Don't serve gods before me. Don't make any idol or image of other gods. Don't use my name for your own idle purposes. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder, don't commit adultery. Don't take what's not yours. Don't give false testimony against your neighbor. Don't covet what your neighbor has. These are like the 10 commandments. But what is God saying in those commandments? I grew up in a pretty strict house. Lots of do's and don'ts in my house never was allowed to have a video game console growing up. And I grew up in like the classic era of video game consoles. Never had a Nintendo, never had a Sega Genesis. To this day, I'm the worst video game player in my house. My wife, my 12-year-old, my nine-year-old, all better than me. I just never was allowed to have one. It was viewed as a waste of time, it was prohibited. I was never allowed to watch The Simpsons. It was just off limit. Some of you are shocked and appalled. Someone just jumped when I said that. Wasn't allowed to watch MTV. Never really was allowed to go out much. Like, people were like, well, what was your curfew? And I was like, what's a curfew? I don't, I just don't leave. I'm just here. <laughs> um, wasn't really allowed to use the phone. Like, just pretty, pretty strict. There were certain things I was required to do. So I kind of grew up in a small town, kind of farming community. We had a little farm. We always had animals around. So I had to feed my sheep. I had to comb the horse. I had to make sure the cows had water. Um, I had a little bitty calf one time that I raised from a bottle and I had to go feed it its bottle at 5.30 every morning or whatever. Like I just had to do that. The, the worst thing I had to do, this was my least favorite chore by far, is, and I, I can't explain this, but like we had a coffee can, like an old Folgers can, that sat on the counter my parents still have this. Now my kids have to do it. It's fantastic when we go to visit. So anything you like put down your garbage disposal, potato peels, what, you know, scrape off your plate. We didn't have a garbage disposal. 
we had a coffee can. And so everything would get scraped into the can. Super gross when you think about it. And then like one of my chores was periodically when the can was full or the smell was too rancid, I guess, it was my job to take the can outside and dump it. That was my chore. I hated that chore, but it was expected that I do it. And if I didn't do it, I was disciplined for not doing it. So there were just all these rules that I had, and they could kind of be summarized by this classic phrase. Maybe your parents said it. Maybe if you're a parent, you've said it. If you're going to live in my house, you're going to live by my rules. And you know what's interesting to me about that statement? Is when you hear that statement, what our focus is usually drawn to is the fact that we have to follow rules. And we all but forget the first part where we have this gift of living in someone's house. And I wonder when we read the Ten Commandments if it kind of sounds like, well, if you're going to live in my house, you're going to obey my rules. And all we see is the rules. And what we lose sight of what God is really saying here is he is inviting us into his presence to dwell. And it's really a beautiful thing when you think about it. These aren't rules. They're an invitation to a relationship. And I think we know that because of what God says. But I think we also know that because of what he doesn't say. A closer examination of this text reveals something that he doesn't say that's kind of startling when you slow down and think about it. You know, you'd expect that after getting people out of their captivity and getting them out in the wilderness where he kind of has their undivided attention and after building up all this street cred, what with the Red Sea and all, he would have this perfect opportunity just to go, hey, I'm the real deal, and I'm the only God. But when you read Exodus 20, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I'm the only God. It's kind of strange when you think about it. Now, in the ancient Egyptian world, if you have ever spent any time studying ancient history, you know that there were plenty of gods to choose from. Now, I don't think any of them were real, but there were lots of them. I mean, like hundreds, thousands. You got God for the sun, and God for earth, and God for the Nile River, and you got gods that are sort of depicted as frogs and all this crap. I mean, it's just, there's gods everywhere. And for a people that have lived among the Egyptians, they were aware of this. They were aware of all the different worship practices and all the, all the deities that the Egyptians had. It's not all that foreign to us today either. I've had a chance on two occasions to visit the country of India. India is a predominantly Hindu nation. The Hindus have thousands and thousands and thousands of deities. Now, India is a beautiful country, but you can't walk a half a mile without seeing a temple to some god or goddess somewhere. I was in a store um, in this little shopping center, and there were just these God's there. And I mean, I'm like every corner of the shop had these statues, these gods and goddesses that the Hindus venerate, worship, revere, depend on. I mean, they're everywhere. You'd be driving down the street and there'd be a flatbed truck with like a mobile temple on it that would just be on the side of the road and everybody would gather around and, and worship. 
I heard a, another story about a, a pastor that went to India. I don't know him personally, but I heard him tell this story in a sermon once. He went to India, and kind of like I did, probably did some mission stuff or preached or whatever, and walked around with a tour guide and all this kind of thing. And saw the same thing I saw, experienced the same thing I experienced, temples and gods and goddesses everywhere you turn. And as he got to the end of his trip, he asked his tour guide if the tour guide had ever been to the United States, and the tour guide responded that he had. And the pastor asked him, well, did you like it in the U.S.? And the guy honestly said, no, I didn't really like it. And the pastor asked him why not. And the response came back from this uh, guy who lives in a society that is full of gods and goddesses. The response came back, I couldn't stand the idolatry there. Now that's a pretty heavy statement when you slow down and actually ask the question, what are the idols among us? You know, if you are so driven to be in love, if being in love prompts you to sacrifice your body and your soul just so you can feel that feeling, then love's become an idol to you. If you are, have a lust for money that consumes you so much that you will cheat or maybe just obsess over getting more of it, then money has become an idol to you. If your image or your personal branding has become so important to you that it tempts you to be fake or phony or maybe just fearful of what people think of you, then your self-image has become an idol to you. If our ideology replaces the gospel and we're willing to do things that compromise what we believe to see a certain ideology come to pass, then that ideology has become an idol to you. Brothers and sisters, idols come not only in gold-plated statues, but in the lusts of the flesh and in ideas and in thoughts and in preferences. And we bow down to those idols every single day. And God knew that that was true. He knew that for us there's no shortage of options and what we would name a God in our life. And so he doesn't beat his chest and say, I'm the only God. He simply invites us into a relationship where even if he's not our only option, he has proven time and time again that he is our best option. And we should devote ourselves to him and not to serving others. These aren't rules. This is an invitation to a relationship, and we know that because of what God says, and we know that because of what he does not say, and I think we know it because of why he says what he says. You know, if you ask some kid at church camp growing up trying to get memory verse points or whatever the case may be, if you grew up in church camp, there's a weird memory verse contest thing that happens. We can't, don't have time to get into it. There are other weird things like preacher boy contests. The Christian subculture, particularly in the Midwest, super freaky. If you grew up in it, you know it's true. We can talk about it later. Um, If you ask them what's in Exodus 20, they'll say the Ten Commandments. I mean, we're just taught to believe that's where the ten rules are. But that's not how this chapter begins. 
See, the reason why God says what he says here is something that we often miss. But look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Then God began to speak directly to all the people. Verse 2. I'm the eternal, your God. I led you out of Egypt and liberated you from lives of slavery and oppression. See, before he gets to all of the rules, God's motivation in saying these things is he wants to speak directly to his children. He has their undivided attention, and he doesn't want to speak through Moses. He wants to speak to them. He wants to invite all of them in. And he wants to remind them of the context of their relationship, which is one where he has brought deliverance to them already. He doesn't give them these commandments when they're beside the Nile in Egypt, still in shackles. He delivers them from their captivity, and then he says, this is what our relationship is going to look like. I want to invite you into this relationship. In light of what God has done, there's an invitation to us. And what's interesting is in light of all of that, when you look at the first commandment that we would not serve any God except for him, if you can follow the first commandment, you can follow them all. If you can just solely give your worship and focus to God, then you're not going to be tempted by these other gods. And I think what God knew, I think what he knew is that the key to all of this was if we could obey that first commandment, that we could obey them all. In other words, we either have no other gods or we're enslaved to one of them. If we can throw all of our loyalty behind God, then we can really be free. But if we choose to bow down to other types of gods, then we're walking right back into slavery. We're putting our shackles right back around our wrists. A relationship with him, the deliverance that he offers, brings us to freedom from captivity. But so often, tempted by these other gods in our lives, we, we think we can do them both. We think we can express loyalty to God and have these little loyalties to other things. But we don't realize the idolatry that's inside of us. It's no other gods or it's slavery. Those are the only two choices. And God doesn't want us to be enslaved. He doesn't want us to constantly think about the other gods in our lives. He really wants us to be free. And I think one of the problems for us is that our idolatry has become so normal and so socially accepted that we don't even recognize it as such. Like an elephant statue seems weird to us, but there are so many things in our lives that expose idolatry that, that we just, we can't recognize them, they're so familiar. Our concern about what other people think of us the amount of wealth we possess, the amount of pleasure we can attain, the amount of comfort we have, all these things that in our culture, they are not a big deal. E even the most devoted Christians would not say those things are that big of a deal. 
Let me give you an example. I bought this shirt yesterday. It's a nice shirt. (laughs) It instantly, I'm not going to say it's my best shirt. That's probably not true. But certainly top three or four shirts. And then I was reading, I've been reading Dallas Willard this year. Never read Dallas Willard. You should read Dallas Willard. It's a slow read. It's a good read. All of them. I mean, I'm only on the second one, but he's good. But he said something about vain conceit. He said something about caring about what other people think of you and how we will manipulate how we look or act to get that to happen. And I thought about buying this shirt. And the reason I bought this shirt is because I thought it looked good on me, which it does. I mean. But I got to thinking about that, and I was like, wait, so the only reason I bought this shirt is because I thought I looked good in it, and other people might think the same thing. So like when you slow down, the only reason I bought this shirt is because I care what you think about me. Now most of us would say, dude, that's no big deal. So you got a nice shirt. It's no big deal. And I guess when you don't really slow down to think about it, it's not. But I just wonder if maybe we, we find these idolatrous positions in our lives because we don't slow down to think and check our motivations and ask ourselves, why do I care about this right now? Why does this matter to me right now? Why should I care what Matt brought us thinks about me in this shirt like why should why should that matter if I'm really only serving God if my position of worship and concern and loyalty is only to God what does it matter what I look like or what kind of vehicle I drive or how big my house is or how many Twitter followers I have or what position in my company I'm at why does that stuff matter but everything I just said I mean, you and I, we small talk about it all the time like it's nothing. All I'm saying is I struggle with that because it's easy for me to go, oh, Ra, the sun god? But we all have our own idols and they always overpromise and underdeliver. I'm either gonna gain a bunch of weight and this shirt's not gonna fit me anymore or I'm gonna spill something on it and ruin it forever. Like this is sh- <laughs> a shirt. But I spent like 30 minutes yesterday picking it out. I had like a little worship service in Target where I stood in front of a rack of shirts. <laughs> what do you want from me, rack of shirts? I mean, when you slow down and think about it, it's weird. God has already delivered us. There's no deliverance left to be had. There's no single possession or mountain of possessions. There's no relationship that we could have that could possibly replace the relationship he's invited us into. These aren't a bunch of rules. This is an invitation to a unique, deep, meaningful, beautiful relationship that 
overpromises and still somehow manages to overdeliver. It's it's a it's it's why the Exodus narrative is important to us in this season of Lent as we focus our minds toward the resurrection. Is there's a promise there that's not going to be broken. It's already been fulfilled. We have deliverance. We have freedom. Our chains have been broken. Our shackles removed. And we just run back and put them back around our wrists occasionally. It doesn't make any sense. We flirt and dabble with other gods. And the one true God who has already delivered us offers us freedom. And we think we're free. But are we really? These aren't rules. It's an invitation to a relationship. It's the same relationship that God is offering the Israelites. It's the same relationship that Jesus offered to us. Even as he approached the cross on the night before he suffered, he sat in relationship with his friends, and he took the bread and he broke it, he said, hey, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. And every time you're together, I want you to remember the relationship I'm offering you. A relationship that comes because my body's been broken on your behalf. And he took the cup and he passed it to his friends. And he said, every time you're together, I want you to drink. And I want you to remember that this is my blood shed for you because I want to have a relationship with you. I want you to be free. So God, we thank you for this bread and for this cup and for the relationship that it reminds us of. It is one of freedom and deliverance. It is one of presence, closeness. And while, like the Israelites, your power and your majesty and the thunder and lightning of it all could cause us to keep our distance. Through Jesus, you invite us close. So we thank you for this time of communion where we reflect and remember and celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen. As we head toward the Lord's Supper, let's say this prayer together. I'll lead as the celebrant, you follow as the people. Oh Lord our God, we are reminded in this Lenten season how desperately we need you in what we have done and in what we have left undone. We have not loved all of our heart and soul. We have not loved you with all of our mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Our attention turned inward. We have isolated ourselves from others, and even worse, we have attempted to isolate ourselves from you. Merciful God, forgive our sins, release us from our guilt and shame, lift our eyes, lift our chins, lift our hearts. We humbly and joyfully begin again with you and with one another. Amen. If you're helping to serve communion, we would invite you forward at this time. Here at Ecclesia, we participate in the Lord's Supper by intinction, which means we'll invite you to get up in just a moment and come forward. At each of the stations, there'll be uh, bread in the cup. You can just dip, uh, tear off a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup. In the middle of each section is the juice. 
on the outside of each section is wine. At the back of the room, if it's helpful for your health, we have a gluten and dairy-free station. You can participate in communion there um, as well. There's a couple other ways you might choose to respond during this time. Uh, Also in the back of the room, we'll have faithful brothers and sisters that would love to pray with you. Who knows what's going on in your life, but we just want you to know that you're not alone in that. And so if you need somebody to talk to or to pray with, uh, there'll be folks back there that would be happy to meet with you. Um, and pray uh, with you for whatever that may be. And then on my right, your left, uh, we have a covenant table. Maybe this is a community that you just feel very aligned with, that you want to journey uh, together with in the gospel as we seek to live out our individual relationships with the Lord, but also our relationships with each other. Uh, We love our church family, and if you would like to unite with us, uh, there's a card you can fill out, and we'd love to follow up with you, get to know your story as we enter into this shared story uh, together. This is a beautiful time where you can participate any of all of those things as we remember and reflect on the relationship that Jesus invites us into. Let's celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.